Good morning, church. How's everybody? Good? Good. You know, I I do this a bunch, but I'm just a person who connects well with God in musical worship. That's just how he wired me. That's my thing. It's a highlight of my week every week to get together with you guys and sing praises to God. We're singing that uh, song today about there's joy in the house of the Lord today. And, And I was just rejoicing in that, celebrating in that, and thinking about, you know, the truth of the matter is, let's not get confused. This building is not the house of the Lord. We are the house of the Lord, Amen. right? So, so the scripture is really, really clear about this, that God doesn't have to dwell in houses that are built by people, because the scripture tells us that when we come to a personal relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit actually indwells us as individuals, and then it says that the Spirit or the Lord inhabits the praises of his people. So when we gather and praise him, there's this unique sort of manifestation of God in our midst that is really, really profound. And so when, when we're singing that song or other songs about the house of the Lord and, we, and we're singing about there's joy in the house of the Lord or let the house of the Lord sing praise, this house, this building is never going to sing praise unless we stop right? Because as Jesus said, if I tell them to stop praising me, the very rocks will cry out, right? So it's our job, church. It's our job. It's our privilege. It's an incredible thing to be able to sing praises to God. And I'm just very, very thankful for that. It has nothing to do with my sermon. That's just free, no extra charge for that. Um, So we've been in this study of the book of David, and I'm using the word study very loosely, um, because in First and Second Samuel, we get this story of David unfolding, but um, it, it unfolds over many, many chapters, over many, many years and decades of time, and we are not taking the time to stop at each verse and look at every chapter in depth. Instead, what we're doing is sort of bouncing along the road of David's life and going, hey, let's stop and look at this. Let's stop and think about this. What can we learn from this? And so as we're doing that, I have to keep catching you guys up and going, okay, here's what you missed between the sermon last Sunday and the sermon this Sunday. And this time, we're gonna actually go backwards before we go forward. We're gonna go backwards. You don't need to open your Bibles. I'm gonna tell you this story. It takes place in 1 Samuel chapter four. um, And it is arguably one of the darkest seasons, if not the darkest season in the history of Israel. Now that's saying a lot because Israel has had a long and challenging history. They have gone through a lot of stuff and they are going through a lot of stuff right now, right? So when we talk about a very, very dark time in their history, I don't know if it's worth comparing one to the other, but just to say that this is a very, very dark time. We're, we're all the way back now in, in 1 Samuel chapter four. This is before anybody even knew who this shepherd boy David was who was going to become king. This is even before Saul became the king. This is before they had a king at all, but the one thing that hasn't changed is their enemy is still the same. They still hate the Philistines and the Philistines hate them. And they're constantly going into these battles with the Philistines. And so they're going into battle with the Philistines in 1 Samuel chapter four and um, 
what would happen in those days is you would, you would line up on two sides of a valley, the two different armies, you would camp overnight, the sun would come up in the morning and by the sunlight you would go out onto the field and you would um, engage in battle all day long and then when the sun goes down, it's like the referee blows the whistle and everybody goes back to their sidelines. You, you um, regroup and camp, sleep and eat and you come back when the sun comes up the next morning. They fought all day, and as they fought all day, and the sun began to go down, and they pulled back and began to look at the casualties, there were 4,000 Israeli soldiers laying dead on the battlefield from that one day's battle. Now, I don't know, if you're like me, you're like, uh, 4,000, is that a lot? Is that, like, how many would you expect? Well, let me put it in perspective for you. Um, you, you've either remember from your history books or you've seen movies or video of this or, or some of you may have actually been old enough to remember this, 1944, June the 6th, was D-Day. And on D-Day, you've seen the video of the, of the, um, the storming of the beach of Normandy, just thousands and thousands of soldiers coming in from the amphibious units and they're charging and they're just coming into machine gun fire and it's horrible. If you've seen the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan, you know that just the gruesomeness and the horror of the whole thing. At the end of that day, on June the 6th, 1944, at the end of that battle, there were 2,500 dead. On the end of this battle, there was 4,000 dead. So they, they regroup, they come back, the generals meet together, they talk about what went wrong and why and what happened, and as they're brainstorming about this, all of a sudden a light bulb comes on above one of the guy's heads, which is really miraculous because it's 3,000 years before the invention of the light bulb, so that's good. <laughs> but the, this idea pops into his head and he says, hey, we went into battle without God. What were we thinking? You know, all of our history, we, we take the Ark of the Covenant, right, the symbol of God, and we put the priests in the front and we march into battle in praise and singing praises to God, and God gives our enemy over into our hands. We didn't even think about that. We just grabbed our weapons and we charged into battle. We've got to bring God into the middle of this. So they sent for the Ark of the Covenant, which is this, this box that basically uh, is the symbol of the manifest presence of God, and they get the box and they bring the magic box into camp, and when the box comes into camp, the people are so excited and thrilled that God is in their midst that this huge shout goes up in this celebration so much so that they hear it on the other side and they're like, what is going on over there? They send a spy over to find out, oh no, they brought the box. You guys know what happened last time they brought the box, right? We're toast, this is gonna be terrible. What do we do, do we run? And they said, no, we die with dignity. We'll go out onto the battlefield and, and they're gonna wipe us out tomorrow, but that's what's gonna happen. And that's what happened. They went out onto the battlefield and the clash and the sound of the swords clashing and the screams and the blood and all of that stuff. And at the end of that day, when they went back to their camps, there was not 4,000 Israeli soldiers dead. There was 30,000 Israeli soldiers dead. They had been routed. Not only were they routed by the enemy, but their priests who came and brought the Ark of the Covenant were killed on the battlefield. 
Not only were the priests killed, but they took the Ark of the Covenant and took it into the camp of the Philistines. Not only were the priests killed and they took the Ark, but when they went back and told the high priest what happened, he was so blown away that he fell over dead. And, and that day, they named the child who was born Ichabod, which is the glory of the Lord has departed. This was a dark day for Israel. The Philistines now have the ark of God. It's a horrible situation. So the Philistines take the ark, and, yet, and yet I wish I had time to give you this you're gonna have to read it on your own this week. It's First uh, Samuel 5, 6, 7, right in there. The Philistines take the ark of God and they bring it in and they give it as an offering to their idol in the temple. And they put it in this uh, temple of this idol, this big statue that they worship, and they set it in front of the idol and when they come back the next morning, their idol has fallen over on its face before the ark of God. And then so, so they prop up their, their, their God, which by the way, if you have to prop up your God, that, that's not a great thing. They, they prop up their God and they set the ark again in front. The next day they come back and this idol has fallen again and now its head and its hands are broken off before the ark. And that was just the beginning because there was plague after plague after plague sent among the Philistines as long as they had the Ark of the Covenant in their presence. And after a little while, they said, enough is enough. And they put it on a cart and they pointed the oxen in that direction and they said, take it back to Israel. And the oxen pulled the cart back across the border of Israel and it came to rest in this uh, town called Kiriath-Jerim and it remained there for 20 years. And those 20 years are the 20 years we've been looking at in our study of David's life. This is, Saul comes to power in those 20 years. David comes to prominence in those 20 years. Saul spends his time trying to kill David, going from place to place, chasing after David. David basically is running in the wilderness for 20 years while all of this is going down and all of this is unfolding. And finally, Saul and Jonathan lay dead on a battlefield. And David rises to prominence. Finally, he becomes first king of Judah and ultimately king of all Israel and Judah. And once he becomes king, he begins to think what needs to change around here. And his first thought is we've gotta get God back into the center of public life for Israel. And so he says, where's the ark? They say it's at Kiriath-Jerim. He says, okay, let's take a bunch of guys, let's go get the ark and we're gonna bring it back and we're gonna put it in the capital city, Jerusalem, also called the city of David. And so they, they go and they get the ark and um, that's where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter six. So this is where you're gonna need to open your Bibles. All of that was uh, preamble. 2 Samuel chapter six, we're gonna dive into this chapter together. Join me as I read verses one through five. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah, which is Kiriath-Jerim. 
uh, to bring up there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all those of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. Okay, let's get this picture in our heads. Have you ever been to the the Rose Parade? right? Streets are just lined with people, tens of thousands of people lining the streets because there's a celebration. It's a parade. There's going to be floats, right? And there's going to be bands and there's going to be all of that. But I don't know if you've ever done this. Do you ever spend the night and wake up in the morning for the Rose Parade? Like the people there are just bleary-eyed on Sunday morning, right? Nobody got any sleep. They all slept on a sidewalk, probably rained on them. It's eight degrees outside. Everybody's grumpy, all of that kind of stuff for the Rose Parade. So get the Rose Parade picture out of your head. Here's a new picture. The Lakers have just won the championship, and it's a Lakers celebration parade. Nobody's bleary-eyed, at least at the beginning of the parade, right? Everybody's excited, tens of thousands of people, they're shutting down the roads, there's just this celebration going on, everybody is high-fiving everybody, everybody's wearing the garb, everybody's excited, that's kind of what's going on here, and as this is happening, there are 30,000 people marching through the streets with the Ark of the Covenant. And, and they've, they've got this beautiful new cart. I can only imagine how beautiful and ornate the cart must have been that they put the Ark on. And there's David leading the charge and they're singing and they're celebrating and everybody's high-fiving and everybody's excited. And then there's these two guys, Uzzah and Ahio. They are the two sons of a Benadab, and literally, they have grown up in a house where the ark of God has been sitting for 20 years. They are used to being around the ark. They are comfortable being around the ark. And so they're sort of the caretakers of the ark. One is going in front of the cart. The other is going behind the cart. There's this giant ceremony. Everybody's excited. It's a huge celebration. And everything is going really, really well until they hit a major pothole in the road So I'm assuming they were on the 10 freeway at this point, probably. They hit a major pothole in the road and the ark begins to shake. And look what happens next. Verse six. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah and God struck him down there for his irreverence and he died there by the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I don't know exactly what this looked like. I don't know exactly how this happened, but I've seen in Raiders of the Ark, Raiders of the Lost Ark, you remember? If you're old enough, there was a, there was a first one about 300 years ago, right? And they, the Nazis came and they grabbed the Ark Remember what happened to those Nazis? They just melted. It wasn't pretty at all, right? Well, this guy just reaches out to make sure the ark doesn't fall off the cart. Seems like a noble thing to do. And as soon as he touches it, boom, he is just struck dead. And everybody stands back. What in the world 
just happened. Why in the world would that happen? Verse six, oh, I already read that. As soon as he touched it, he dies. Why would God do that? Because the ark was given to the people to aid them in their worship of God. It was a manifestation of the presence of God. It was the sign of holiness. It was the only holy thing in the entire world. It was the focus of drawing their attention to God. And when the ark was, was built, there was all of these instructions given and everyone had to learn them. If you were gonna be anywhere near the ark, you had to know there are these rules because this is the sign of the holiness of God. You don't mess with this thing. No one was allowed to touch the ark except for one man, the high priest, once a year on the day of Yom Kippur. Other than that, it could not be touched in any way. If it had to be carried, it was specifically, they were commanded never to put it on a cart. There were these rings on the sides of the ark, and there were these special poles that slid between the rings, and the priests were to carry the ark, run the poles between the rings, carry the ark on their shoulders so that it would be lifted up above everyone so they would look up and see, and, and it would be symbolic of the holiness of God. And so they had skirted a whole bunch of the rules here. That's why the, the cart hits a, hits a pothole or a bump in the road and it begins to shake and this guy reaches out. They were treating the ark like it was just another religious symbol. And so they had been warned about this. And to us, this sounds crazy. It sounds like a bunch of silly rules, like it's just a box. What's the big deal? But to them, it's the presence of God himself. It's the only object on earth that is considered truly holy. And to touch the ark of God is the ultimate sign of disrespect for the holiness of God. And so the people see this guy die and all of them, including David, are freaked out by this, as you can imagine. There's this raucous party going on and suddenly it comes to a stop and everybody is upset. And so David says, basically, how, how can I take this ark into the city? Look at verse eight. David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. So David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Three months, they just leave. They, 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 the place where he dies, they look up and there's a farmhouse. They said, let's just take it there. They take it to the house of Obed-Edom and they say, I just keep this in your barn. We'll let you know what to do later. And he keeps it there. Now, all of you, I'm sure by now, have seen the movie The Wizard of Oz, Right? If you want to get a picture of what happened to Obed-Edom, you know in The Wizard of Oz, when at the beginning of the movie, it's all black and white, and then as soon as Dorothy arrives in Oz, what happens? Color. 
Just everything is burst forth in color. The, the flowers are tall, the, the scarecrows can dance, and the, and the flowers can sing, and the little, what do they call Oompa Loompas? What are they called? Munchkins. The Munchkins, they're not Oompa Loompas. That's a, that's a better movie. There's candy in that one. But anyways, um, they, uh, everything is magical. That's essentially what happened to Obed-Edom's family as soon as the ark came to his house. All of a sudden, all of his crops are bearing tenfold. All of a sudden, all of his animals are um, reproducing at amazing rates. All of a sudden, riches are coming to his house. Every blessing is just pouring out. It's like there's this rainbow, and it just ends at Obed-Edom's house, and there's a pot of gold. It's amazing. And the word gets back to David about this, in verse 12. Now, it was told King David, saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him on account of the ark of God. David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. And so it was that when the bearers of the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and the sound of the trumpet. So now they go to get it. David says, I'm gonna go get the ark and I'm gonna do it the right way now. So now he brings the priests, he brings the special poles. They decide that they're gonna follow the instructions and treat the ark with the respect that it deserves. And now again, we have this parade beginning to happen. And it says the difference is the first one was a celebration. The second one is a worship service. It's a huge difference. And the second time, it says that every six paces, I don't know if this is starting from the house of Obed-Edom all the way to the city of Jerusalem or whether this was somewhere as they got into the city, we don't, we don't know exactly, but every six paces, they would stop and have a worship ceremony where they would sacrifice an animal to the Lord and they would all praise God and they would all pray and then they would pick up the poles and carry it another six paces and do it again and there's thousands and thousands of people in the streets and everybody is rejoicing as it comes in to the, to the city. Now pick it up in verse 16. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. So they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Further, he distributed to all the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread and one of dates and one of raisins to each. Then all the people departed each to his house. All right, we, we need a little side note here. All of a sudden, this lady McCall is back in the story. We haven't heard from her in 20 years. She's David's wife, remember the, Saul, uh, the, the daughter of Saul? And she was given to David, and she's the one who protected him and helped him escape when her father sent assassins to come and kill him. And then we don't hear from her again. Well, if you, if you read along, what you would find, some of the stuff that we skipped, 
is that Saul, once David is on the run, he says, I know how I can get back at David. He takes David's wife, Saul, and gives her, David's wife, Saul, (laughs) David's wife, Michal, and gives her to another man as his wife. And so he's now shaming David publicly, right? Well, 20 years go by, David has been out in the wilderness, and while he was traveling from town to town, let's just put it this way, he met some girls. And he married some of them, several of them. And so by the time he comes back and becomes king, he now has multiple wives, and his original wife is there in Jerusalem married to another guy. So one of the first things he does is takes his wife back from this guy. Now, when we read this story and we see how McCall acts, we tend to judge her harshly. But put yourself in her shoes. This woman has been treated as a piece of property by men. Her, her father gives her to David. Her father takes her away from David, gives her to another man. And now David comes and takes her away from that husband and takes her back. And, and by the way, now she's one of four or five wives. And she's supposed to just be okay with that. It's tough to be her. She's now in the palace as David comes in to the town leading the parade, singing and dancing, wearing only, uh, it says, a linen ephod, which is to say, basically like a slip, like uh, his underwear. So, so he's taken off his crown, he's taken off his royal robes, all of the symbols of his kingship are now laying in the dirt somewhere, and he is dancing in his underwear, leading the people in a worship service. Now, Aren't you thankful Nick doesn't do that here? <laughs> and, and that's what's going on, and she looks out the window, and she's disgusted. Here's what you have to remember. She's a princess. She grew up in a palace. She knows all about which fork you use and which glass you drink out of. she's been taught all of these manners and it's all about appearances, right? You ever watch footage of the royal family in Great Britain doing anything? Oh yeah, we're going for a walk in the park, great. It's a 3,000 person event and everybody's gotta be dressed just right and everybody's gotta say the right thing and do the right, this was her life, this is all she knew. And now her husband is the king and he's out there acting like a drunken frat boy. He is partying in the streets in his underwear. And she is not happy about it at all. Verse 20. When David returned to bless his household, Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids. As one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humbled in my own eyes, but with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished." McCall, the daughter of Saul, had no child to, that, to the day of her death. Here's the thing. 
she was concerned about how all of this looked to the people. But David was concerned about how all of this looked to God. It's a big, big difference. She says, you were dancing before the people. He says, I wasn't dancing before the people, I was dancing before the Lord. There's a difference. And, and, and by the way, if you're picturing this, if they make a movie out of this, which they've done numerous times, if they make a movie out of this, what you're gonna find is this is a marital argument. This is a husband and wife arguing with one another. And uh, I, I try to put this sarcastic sound in my voice when I read her part because she is completely sarcastic in this. She's saying, dude, what are you doing? You look like an idiot out there. Have you forgotten that you're the king? And by the way, you're half naked and you're in front of all these young women. What are you doing? And he gives his speech back and he says, well, listen, by the way, you know, God made me king, not your father. Let me just throw that in there. And, and also, he says, I will be even more lightly esteemed than this. Uh, and the word, literally, the Hebrew word means undignified. He says, I'll be even more undignified than this as I worship God, because I am not gonna worry about what people think of me, I'm gonna worry about what God knows about me. And so he says, and then, because this is a marital argument, he can't resist to get his last jab in. And he says, by the way, all those women that were staring at me, you're right, they liked me. <laughs> but I'm not worried about that, I'm worried about God, what God thinks of me. And so, um, Here's the thing, she's concerned about all the exterior things and he's concerned about his worship. Now listen, you and I have both probably been to events where there's massive celebrations. I have been to sporting events. There was some game yesterday. I, I haven't mentioned it yet, but anyway, there was a big game yesterday and man, in my living room, there was a celebration taking place. Um, but anyway, for those of you who are weeping about that, ha ha. So anyway, um, I have been to sporting events where, where um, a team scores and people are so excited, everyone jumps from their seat, they spill all of their popcorn and beer on the guy in front of them, and they start high-fiving, hugging, and kissing perfect strangers just because they're wearing the same team colors, right? It's a massive celebration. I went to a concert last week, and first of all, it took me an hour and a half to get from the off-ramp of the freeway into the parking lot of the place. There's just thousands of people coming. I get in there and then the lights come down and you hear the first notes and the lights come up and there's the band and everybody lost their mind. Everybody went bonkers for this band. So we go to a sporting event and it's okay to lose our minds in celebration. We go to a concert and it's okay to just worship those who are on the stage, but we come to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we think, well, I, I, I don't, you know, I feel uncomfortable, I'm, I don't like to clap, or my voice doesn't sound real good, so I just won't, I'll just sort of stand and watch. We need to be called out. Amen. Um, 
The King of kings and Lord of lords has called us into the throne room to worship him. And, and by the way, she was mad at David. Why? Because he threw off his crown and his robes. Go to the book of Revelation and see what they do in heaven. The elders who surround the throne of God in heaven, it says they cast down their crowns and throw off their robes in worship and praise of the Lamb of God. Because there's something about knowing that you're in the presence of God that tells you this is not a, a normal moment This is not something to be taken for granted. This is something incredibly holy, incredibly beautiful, incredibly special, and I'm going to treat it that way. And you know what? There can't be anything that lifts me up in this moment. I'm taking off my crown. I might be a big deal amongst the people, but in front of the King of kings and Lord of lords, I am a humble servant, and all I can do is fall on my face and say, oh Lord, woe is me, and cry out to God in praise. That's what it is to worship. And so, you know, as we're going through this story of David's life, I've already made it clear as many times as I can, David is not the hero of this story. David is a guy who stumbles and makes mistakes and messes up, just like all of us, (laughs) right? And yet, there are these moments in which we can just zoom in on David's life in a moment and go, wow, I can learn from that. I need, to, I need to be like that. David measures his worship in terms of what God thinks of it, not in terms of what people think of it. And I, and I just ask you, you know, when you leave a, a Sunday worship service and you go to Olive Garden to meet your friends for lunch afterwards, and somebody says, how was the worship today? What are the filters in your head to answer that question? Are you thinking, well, um, they picked three songs I didn't even know. It was really not, I didn't get it. Or there was like this rattling in the speaker the whole time, it was very distracting. Or man, the pastor just goes on and on. And I know you never say that. Um, like, what are you thinking when you're asked, how was the worship service? Are you thinking, what did I get out of it? Or are you thinking, what did I give the Lord? It's a very important distinction. We need to sort of change our thinking on this um, because that's how God measures a worship service. Look again at verse 22. I will be more lightly esteemed than this and will be humbled in my own eyes. That's how we come to God in worship. We don't make it about ourselves in any way, shape, or form. What's more important to you? Is it what people think of you or is it what God knows of you? So, so let me just remind us, and I wanna be very clear here, I'm not beating people over the head. I'm not pointing fingers at anybody here. I am convicted by this in my own life. What is my heart of worship all about? We need to ask ourselves some challenging questions. Let me remind you what an incredible privilege it is to be in the presence of God to have his spirit dwelling in us and among us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. These people could have never dreamed of such a thing. Just to be near the ark was the height of worship for them. We are, we are one with the spirit if we're in Christ. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's an unbelievable privilege. 
what, what do we think of the fact that we are invited into the throne room of heaven and we have access and we get to just run in, climb up on the lap of God and call him daddy. What an unbelievable privilege it is. How excited are you about the opportunity to worship God or do you tend to make it more about yourself? and what you get out of it, and your preferences, and your enjoyment, and your comfort, and your dignity. Guys, every, every week, for years and years and years, I, I just pinch myself that I get to be worshiping in song with you guys, and the band is so good. Amen. And, and the lighting is so cool, and the sound system works so great, and it's all on video and all that stuff. Like, I am truly, truly blessed by that, but I'm telling you, turn off all the lights, get rid of the band, and let's just focus our eyes on Jesus, and that's worship. So we don't have to get caught up in the details. The reason we put so much effort into the way we do the music and all that kind of stuff is because it is our offering, not to you, but to God. All of us make that offering. So this is not about um, how much I get out of it. But, but let, me, let me be careful here. Let's not swing the pendulum too far. Um, because it's also not about how I can attract the most attention to myself by my behavior, right? So you're like, well, I read it. David just took off his clothes and began dancing through. That's what I'm doing next Sunday. Um, I don't suggest that. We have armed people in the room who will take you away. Um, and why is that? All kidding aside, you know why that is? If you're, if you're, you know, you run up on the stage and grab the microphone and start singing, or if, you, if you're jumping up and down, running through the aisles and all that kind of stuff, here's what happens. Everyone whose attention was on God just turns to you. And, and so we have to be very careful to find this balance. On the one hand, we need to not be worried about what anyone thinks of the sound of my voice or whether I wore the right clothes today or, or how I look when I lift my hands or any of those kind of things. On the other hand, we need to go, I want to point everything to God and nothing to me. And somehow we find that balance and that's worship. So I'm gonna ask you today to just look in the mirror and ask the question, how is my worship going? How's my life of worship? Who has my attention? Not just on Sunday morning, which is relatively easy. Who has my attention on Wednesday afternoon when I'm folding laundry? Who, who has my attention on Thursday morning when I'm clocking in at work? Who has my attention when I'm sitting again in bumper-to-bumper traffic on the 210 on a Friday afternoon? Who gets my attention then? He lives within us and deserves our focus at all times. So do I give God my attention all the time? Or do, and what I give to God, whether it's in song or through a financial offering or serving using my gifts or whatever the case, what I give to God, do I give sparingly to make sure that I have plenty for me? Or do I say, God, it's all about you and it's not about me? By God's amazing grace, you guys, we don't need a golden ball have the spirit of the Lord living within us. And that means every day is a holy day. That, that means every moment is a worship service. 
That means every offering is significant. Jesus is our great high priest. He's made a way for us to come to the Father just as we are and lay our hearts and our lives at his feet in an act of worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So I just ask you, have you been taking that for granted? Because sometimes I have. Have you been... Have you been making worship more about you than it's about him? Have you forgotten what an awesome privilege it is to be invited into the presence of the living God who inhabits the praises of his people? It's it's not about you. It's not about me. It's not even about us. It's all about him. Isn't it about time to regain our sense of awe and wonder and make our whole lives about worshiping the king? For the scripture says, now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Let's stand together and pray. Lord, what a privilege it is. What an awesome privilege it is that we just bow our heads, call upon the name of the Lord, and you're here with us. What an incredible blessing it is that we can sing songs of praise to you, that we can do practical works of service, that we can dedicate our hearts and our minds to you day in and day out as acts of worship. Father, Forgive us that we get distracted by the many things of this earth and we take for granted the nearness of you. But may we be people who actually fall at your feet and who live practically in our day-to-day lives in the workplace, in the family, in the community, in our financial lives, in, 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 in dealing with our health, in the way we interact with other people, In every practical way, may we be worshipers of God. Make us that because you deserve that from us. So transform us. Make us who you want us to be, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.